Audible Originals presents Mandela, The Lost Tapes, written and presented by Richard Stengel. I had a revolver, which was unlicensed, and I just took it out and put it in between the seats. That's Nelson Mandela. He's talking about the time he was driving down a hill with a gun and got stopped by the South African security police. And uh, at one time, I thought I could open the door fast and roll down. But I didn't know how long, you know, this bank was and what was there. I was not familiar with the landscape. Mandela could always think on his feet. He'd only had the gun a few weeks. He was young and fit, but didn't know the countryside or what was beyond that hill. When that Ford V8 pulled in front of his car outside of Harrick Falls, South Africa, on August 5, 1962, Mandela knew instantly what had happened. He was caught. Mandela had just returned from a trip to the rest of Africa to raise money and acquire weapons for a violent overthrow of the white, racist South African regime. He had a choice, surrender or try to escape. I suspect that if he'd tried to use that revolver or attempted to roll down the hill, it's very likely you wouldn't be listening to this podcast right now. It's possible you would never have heard of Nelson Mandela. He put his hands up. He knew the police had set up other roadblocks around the Eastern Cape. He also knew that the police had more than enough evidence to arrest him, more than enough to convict him. He was the most wanted man in South Africa. I had heard them broadcasting a message, the roadblock to Northern Natal, and the other one south you know, to the Transkei should be removed because uh, they have arrested me. What he didn't know was that it wasn't just good police work that had enabled the cops to pick him up. I asked for a lawyer, they refused. Then in the morning, they brought me before the magistrate and made an order that I should be transferred to Johannesburg. What he didn't know was that he would not emerge from prison for almost three decades. Mandela would go on to bring freedom to South Africa, prevent a racial civil war, win the Nobel Peace Prize and become the first president of a free and democratic South Africa. Mandela was a cautious revolutionary. He abhorred violence, but was willing to use it to win freedom for his people. He came to that conclusion slowly, reluctantly. The idea of going underground was really to start a new era of violent activity. You may remember Nelson Mandela as a smiling, grandfatherly figure. But he was also a steely revolutionary. He was the first head of the military wing of the African National Congress, his political organization. It was called Mkonto Wisizwe, Spear of the Nation. The responsibility for the violence in South Africa is due solely to the action of the government itself. Mahatma Gandhi once campaigned for freedom in South Africa. But unlike Gandhi, Mandela saw nonviolence as a tactic, not a principle. Mandela's overarching goal was always freedom for his people. Anything that got him there, well, that was okay. I have fought against white domination. And I have fought 
against black domination. The idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an idea for which I hope to live. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. That is an actual recording from inside the courtroom at the Rabonia trial in 1964. That is the famous final paragraph of his speech from the dock when he not only declared his creed, but dared the state to hang him. In 1992, I was hired to work with Mandela on his autobiography, a book which became Long Walk to Freedom. I met face-to-face with Mandela for almost two years. We made more than 60 hours of tapes, the tapes you're listening to. I learned everything I could about his political life and everything I could about him as a man, as a human being. But as public as Mandela was on the outside, on the inside, he wasn't easy to know. He had locked away so much that was personal and private. Very few people, maybe no one, really knew him. He once said to me with a smile, Many people love me from afar, but very few from up close. He was a man who went from a rural countryside without electricity or indoor plumbing, to a big city lawyer, to a militant organizer, to a political prisoner, and, as we were writing this book, a man preparing to become president of the new South Africa. My name is Richard Stengel, and I was his ghostwriter. And this is Mandela the lost tapes. Never again shall it be that this beautiful land will again experience the oppression of one by another. Let freedom reign. God bless Africa. It's partly the story of how Mandela and I wrote his memoir, long walk to freedom. But much more than that, it's a story about our unusual friendship, my struggle to learn who Mandela really was, and my quest to understand what makes a human being great. Good evening, Garrick, and it is just that. South Africa's President F.W. de Klerk ended the suspense at 5 o'clock this afternoon, South Africa time. Mr. Nelson Mandela will be released at the Vicar Verstaat prison on Sunday, the 11th of February, at about 3 p.m. That was February 1990. Mandela spent 27 years in jail in South Africa as a political prisoner. He could have gotten out at any time if he had renounced his cause. Instead, he continued his battle against apartheid from his cell until the South African government essentially surrendered to him. Mandela had become the international face of the struggle for freedom. For the first time in 27 years, Mandela was going to walk through the gates of prison and be a free man. Can you go over the chronology of your last day in prison and what happened? I got up as usual, washed, had breakfast, and uh, packed. My wife was present and arrived. 
and uh, my friends, you see, from Cape Town arrived. As he was telling me this, he seemed to be reliving it. A huge crowd of supporters was waiting for Mandela outside the prison gates. He hadn't been prepared for that. But shortly before that, before I came out, one of the TV presenters for the SABC phoned the house and said, now, look, do you mind coming out of the car with your wife before you reach the gate and you can walk to the gate? So I said, yes, I'll do that. And he did. The South African Broadcasting Company captured the moment for the world to see. There's Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, a free man taking his first steps into a new South Africa. I had no imagination that I was going to meet such a big crowd. And I got out and I walked and I saw the crowd. I didn't expect it. I was completely bowled out. His first public appearance in nearly three decades. 72 years old. Walking strongly, step by step, further into freedom. There were so many people, but I just waved to them. And then they eventually reached the gate. There is a very nice picture of Mr. Mandela and his wife, Winnie. He's walking back towards the car, and the cavalcade starts moving. Mandela and Winnie got in a car to be driven to Cape Town, where he was scheduled to give his first public speech in decades. But there were many more people at the prison than they expected. The men and women in the crowd were excited. Some of them may have had a little too much mkumboti, a traditional South African beer brewed from corn. They surrounded the car, and it was a very anxious moment. They were climbing on the car, knocking at the door, at the window, demanding that we should open, I should come out. The revelers jumped onto the hood of the car, everyone anxious to see their hero. We were trapped there. We couldn't go forward, we couldn't go backward. It was excitement and chaos. So they collected uh, the marshals and eventually opened the way. And the driver then drove out. Then I asked him now, where are you going to? And he says, I don't know. I just want to escape from that crowd. I've never had such experience. I don't know where I'm going to. The driver gunned the engine and sped off. He just wanted to get out of there. He drove for 20 minutes before he calmed down. And when he did, he didn't know where he was. And neither did Mandela. With the eyes of the world upon him, Nelson Mandela, the planet's most famous political prisoner and the man who was expected to guide South Africa to a democratic future, was lost. We took a different route instead of going straight to Cape Town. We went uh, at the bottom of the mountains. And what he saw in the white-dominated areas surprised him. But to see whites standing next to the road and top of the bridge, waving, and some of them actually doing this, was very encouraging. When he said doing this, he made the clenched fist salute with his right hand, the symbol of black power. The world in 1990 was a lot different from the world he left when he went into prison 27 years before. They stopped at Bishop's Court, where Archbishop Tutu lived. Only the Archbishop wasn't there. The phone rang. It was Tutu. He was waiting for Mandela, along with hundreds of thousands of others, at the Grand Parade in Cape Town. Tutu phone. And they said, no, you must come back immediately to the town hall. 
and that because the people are going to rebel, if you're not here, they want to know where you are. The world was waiting for Mandela to speak. News crews from dozens of countries were jockeying for position. Hundreds of thousands of people were gathered in the city hall square. And they were going to be very unhappy if Mandela wasn't there. Eventually, the driver got his bearings, and he found a way to deliver Mandela. So I went back. It was difficult even then to get into the hall. There were throngs of people even behind the hall, but I managed eventually. And then I went to the balcony and looked at the square, and I saw the people. And I address them. Amanda! Amanda! In Africa! I took out the speech, then I tried to take out my glasses. But there was just one problem. I didn't have the glasses. I'm not so sure now whether I used my wife's glasses. I think I used uh, either my wife's or Albertina Sisulu. I know one of them gave me her glasses, <laughs> and I used them. I could read. I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom for all. Therefore, a place the remaining years of my life in your hands. The next morning, Mandela told me he received a telegram. We said, well, I was very happy that uh, you are released and that you are now back amongst us. But your speech was very boring. <laughs> That's me, laughing in the background. We laughed a lot. December 1992. My first meeting with Mandela didn't go all that well. It was a get-acquainted session, no tape recorder. I waited in the hall outside his office, and when he saw me for the first time, he said, Ah, you are a young man. It was not a compliment. Mandela always respected age and experience. To him, the word youthful meant immature. It was a little deflating. Mandela was 72, he was a big man, six foot two inches tall. I was a skinny six foot. When I shook hands with him for the first time, I felt like I was shaking hands with a catcher's mitt. He moved slowly. Nothing about him was ever abrupt. His presence was both warm and cool. He was preternaturally calm. I had been working as a journalist for about a decade. My hair was still dark. I wore khakis a blue sports jacket and tie that first time, the journalist's uniform. I was taken into his office at what was then the headquarters for the African National Congress, or the ANC, in downtown Joburg. I assumed it was a show office. It was so immaculate. There was an aircraft carrier-sized desk with nothing on it. The coffee tables were also empty. But that's before I got to know Nelson Mandela. Mandela was orderly to a fault, almost obsessively so. Everything around him was always clean and spare. I sometimes watched him carefully make his hotel bed in the morning, to the horror of the hotel cleaning staff. He asked me a few polite questions. When had I arrived? Where was I staying? When he asked me if I had come over for this project or something else, I felt my heart sink. 
And then, a few minutes later, when he said something like, After a few conversations like this, I suppose you will have enough for your book, I got, well, a little steamed. I said, if you think you will have enough for the book after a few talks like this, you have a grave misperception of what this will entail. I think I might have even used the word crazy. He looked a little taken aback. It was at that point that his assistant ushered me out of the office. I felt like I had ended the project even before it began. It's hard to explain how little Mandela knew about so much of modern life. He had been in prison since 1962. About politics, he was a genius. But everything else, he was still learning. He missed 27 years of history from behind bars. He missed the women's rights movement. He missed computers. He missed gay rights. He missed the Beatles. Yeah, I know. I remember being with him just a few weeks later on New Year's Eve in a hotel in Natal with a cover band playing Beatles songs and realizing that he'd never heard any of them. So I could understand that he didn't know much about how his autobiography would be put together. And it's not like it was anywhere near the most important thing he had to do. I had to beg to get back in to see him. Ten days later, I sat down with him again. The first thing I did was apologize to him for being so brusque the other day. I don't know why I used that word. It just popped into my head. He smiled and said, If you thought you were brusque, you must be a very gentle young man indeed. And we both started to laugh. That broke the ice. Our official interviews started a week later. Friday, December 4th. It was December of 1992. It wasn't the ideal time for Mandela to be working on a book. He had been out of prison for nearly two years, but it was a very tense time in South Africa. He was the head of the ANC, the main opposition to the white South African apartheid regime. He was trying to save his country and prevent it from descending into civil war. He was negotiating with F.W. de Klerk, the president of South Africa, on what a democratic election would look like. He was beginning negotiations with the government on a new constitution. He was trying to get the country ready for that first election in which he was hoping to become president. Mandela was the leader of the ANC, but his leadership did not go unchallenged. Some in the ANC thought he was too old, too tired, too moderate, too concerned with placating whites rather than uplifting blacks. He had a lot on his shoulders. It would be two more difficult years before South Africa would hold its first ever democratic election, and Mandela would become its first ever democratically elected president. In other words, it wasn't the best time to start working on his autobiography. But he saw it as something that would help him in that first election. It was also something that would help him provide for his family, and burnish his international reputation. He saw me as the person who would get it done for him. For me, Mandela was not just a great man that I would help, but someone I came to love. I understood I needed to get the book done, but I wanted to understand who he was. What made him Nelson Mandela? What made him great? What was human greatness? How could I learn from that? And would any of it rub off on me? The man before me contained so much. In 1992, he was a gracious, white-haired gentleman. 
but he had once been dubbed the Black Pimpernel by South African papers, a dashing and dangerous revolutionary who eluded the police for years and confronted the prospect of his own death many times. But who was Nelson Mandela, really? I would meet Mandela several times a week, almost always in the morning, 6.30 or 7 a.m. He was an early riser. He would wake up at 4 or 5 a.m. We would meet in his office in the city or in his home in the suburbs and a few times at his house in the Transkai, the rural area where he grew up. He'd often take tea and breakfast while we talked. This is the only time I take sugar. Something sweet, like jam. I rely on this sugar. Are you sure you don't want uh, some jam? I don't like jam. I had a Sony tape recorder that used mini cassettes, and every morning I would clip the microphone to his shirt collar. He was incredibly still when I did this, like a statue. We did hour-long conversations, two or three, sometimes four times a week. Okay, I have some small questions about Robben Island. Yes. And then after that, we'll go to some larger general questions and finish off the whole Robben Island years. Yes. And that's when I'm going to ask you some hard questions. Um, It was kind of awkward at first. Sometimes he leaned over to look at my notes. You're not supposed to look at my questions. I was joking when I said that, by the way, and he smiled. We were still trying to figure each other out. It may be necessary for you to ask questions, you know. Just remind me what we'll talk about tomorrow. But at some point early on, something clicked. He was an intellectual giant in spite of his... uh, in spite of being a a pygmy. I won't have you call him a pygmy in the book. Ah! (laughs) We'll say he was an intellectual giant Despite yes. his small stature. Yes, quite. Okay. Yes. What would be really terrible yeah. is to call him an intellectual pygmy. Yeah. Now you can see. When he laughed, the whole world seemed to become brighter. He was sunny. His days were so full, so consequential, so many weighty things were on his shoulders. I felt that he came to look forward to these sessions as a kind of oasis in his day. Sometimes our time together was quiet. Sometimes it was chaotic. There was little structure. Each morning when I arrived at ANC headquarters, I had to explain all over again what I was doing there. It was sometimes impossible to keep the interviews on track. There were phone calls, people dashing in and out, asking him to sign something. Yes, um... But Mandela was always patient with everyone, even me. He'd spell out every name and detail for every story he told. Then uh, uh, Christmas Tinto, C-H-R-I, the ordinary Christmas. He'd even spell out names that I could spell. Harry, H-A-R-R-Y. I wanted every detail. Onion, tomato, spinach, strawberries, broccoli. Turn out the spelling now, I think it's double C. Double C, right. Mandela was relentlessly punctual. We have another five minutes because... Another seven minutes because... uh, He had zero tolerance for lateness. Let's use that five minutes. Even though people were habitually late all around him. Two tough women were his chiefs of staff. 
So you, you were saying about the problems that, uh, that people had. They would interrupt him whenever they needed him to take a phone call. Okay, got the verdict. You went straight to prison to um, the local prison. He would instantly get up and do it. I found this frustrating, but there was nothing I could do about it. And how long did that take to, te to teach? About two years. About two years. Mm -hmm. He had seemingly made a decision that it was easier to conform to others' schedules than make everyone conform to his. He once smiled when this was happening and said, African time. When it came to the book, he delegated everything to me. He didn't want to be bothered with any details. His job, as he saw it, was to sit and talk with me. My job was to write the book with input from him. One of the only pieces of editorial advice he gave me was, people like to have their names spelled correctly. You have Mokaba is M-O-K-A-B-A. Because it's so to have the names correct, otherwise people get annoyed. Now, names will definitely be correct. Right. There'll be smarter people than me to make sure that... Correct. Yes, quite, yes. 684 pages later, that's how long Long Walk to Freedom is. It never occurred to me that anyone would ever listen to these tapes. I doubt it occurred to him. Most of these tapes were not exactly lost. But for years, many of them were in boxes in the basement of the Mandela Foundation in Johannesburg. I found a few more of them in my own basement in New York when I was working on this project. A team of producers helped scrub the audio to bring Mandela's voice back to life. For him, he was being very informal and candid for these interviews. He was far more formal and even more careful when he was doing an actual media interview compared to our sessions. I suspect he'd think my interviews with him were, well, too revealing, too private, not meant for the public, not appropriate. I tried to get him to talk about his marriages, how prison affected him, his rivals, his feelings. But he didn't let me in easily. While I thought he was rarely opening up, it's possible that he thought he was. The subtext of so many of my questions was, how did you become the way you are? What made you Nelson Mandela? Sometimes I asked him this directly. Do you feel that you came out a stronger man after all those years in prison than you were when you went into prison? As far as I'm concerned, I have come back with the same views I had before I went to jail and with the same enthusiasm for my political work. I actually asked him some variation of this question a dozen times. I could tell he didn't like it. I was trying, as I had many times before, to get a sense of how he had changed, how he had grown, how the man who walked out of prison after 27 years was different from the man who walked in. What happened in prison that molded the man we saw before us now? I thought the prison years were the key to unlocking who he was. He often described his younger self as hot-headed, intemperate, uncontrolled. I have mellowed. As a young man, you know, I was very radical, using high-flown language, fighting everybody. I would try to ask the question as simply as I could. But would you say, for example, that you came out a more disciplined 
man than when you went in. But he resisted it. It was almost as though he thought it was a trick question somehow. I don't think I was uh, fundamentally different. You can hear the frustration in his voice. From what I was before I went to jail, except that in jail I had a lot of time to think about problems and to see the mistakes that we had committed. Boilerplate. He was, after all, a politician. And all politicians, even great ones like Mandela, never like to admit that they've changed their mind about anything. Here's the message he had to the South African police who had arrested him. If you release me now, without bringing changes, I'll do exactly what you arrested me for. He said versions of that many times in his life. He was stubborn. That stubbornness had helped him survive under the worst of circumstances. But then, one day, he said something different when I asked that question. Perhaps it was out of frustration or he was tired, but he said, I came out much off. That I can say. Okay. I know that doesn't sound earth-shattering or particularly revelatory, but that word, mature, carried a tremendous amount of meaning for him and for us. It meant judgment, self-control, measuredness. For him, a truly mature man was a rarity. His answer was very Mandela-like, terse, matter-of-fact, pragmatic, and a tiny bit surprised that not everyone might see it like he does. Mandela had a highly developed filter. He was exceedingly careful and hardly ever criticized anyone. He once gave a speech where he famously said, the struggle is my life. I used to joke with him that the struggle may have been his life, but his life was my struggle. He laughed at that. But the struggle was his life, and he didn't ever want to jeopardize his great goal freedom for his people. Everything, and I mean everything, was subordinate to that. Family, romance, love. When he talked about someone he worked with or was in prison with, his very highest praise, the most powerful thing he could say about someone was that he was mature. He expressed it very simply. And he did very well. Yes. You want Nelson Mandela to say that about you. Mandela used certain words to express praise, measured, calm, self-disciplined. They're all subsets of mature. If Mandela called you any of those things, you knew he thought highly of you. By contrast, he described people he didn't have a high regard for as emotional, hot-headed, unpredictable, overly sensitive. In other words, immature. When he describes himself before he went into prison, he used all of those words. He was hot-headed, emotional, and temperate, easily triggered into anger, not mature. I have mellowed. As a young man, you know, I was very radical, using high-flown language, fighting everybody. But now, you know, one has to lead. What happened to that hot-headed young man who considered reaching for a revolver when he was stopped by police? I just took it out and put it in between the seats. How did that Mandela come out of prison almost three decades later as a self-disciplined, mature, 72-year-old man who was preparing to become president? What made him Nelson Mandela? And what could I, or any of you, learn from Mandela? Mandela? 